Listen up. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Louisville Urban League's radio show and podcast. My name is Lyndon Pryor. I am the interim president and CEO of the Louisville Urban League. Welcome back to the pod. It is so good um, to be with you all again. Um, thank you for joining us every week. You can catch us on Thursdays from 12 to 1230 on WLLV 101.9 FM or 1240 AM. Or you can find us anytime on your favorite podcast channel. Uh, be sure to subscribe, rate and review us. Let us know what you think about the show. Um, and now you can also find us on YouTube. So please check us out. Uh, it is my sincere hope that after a um, little over a week of what has been incredible and unimaginable um, violence here in our city, that, that we are finding you um, with some measure of peace and strength, whatever it is that is going on in your world. Everybody um, in this city has been impacted by the events of the last uh, 10 or 12 days or so. And so I hope that you are well and I appreciate you taking um, the time that you have to join us here for a minute. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of those things uh, that have been going on in our city and what are um, some pathways forward in that. And this week I am very excited uh, to have with us a special guest um, circuit, circuit Court, excuse me, Circuit Court Judge uh, Brian Edwards, who full, in full disclosure is a member of the Louisville Urban League Board and has been a long friend um, of the league. But thank you, sir, for joining us. Welcome to the pod. Mr. Pryor, thank you so much. And uh, congratulations on, on your current role. Uh, Well-deserved. And, and I know you've hit the ground running a uh, lot on your plate, but you're up for the job, so I know. I'm doing my best, and thank you so much for for the support. So we're gonna jump right in, and you know, as I as I shared, you know, we this is just a conversation, so we're gonna talk about uh, a lot of different things, I'm sure. Um, but first and foremost is, you know, you you've been in Louisville, uh, you know, for a while, well known around Louisville for a while. Um, but for folks who don't know, one of the places I always like to start is kind of give us the quick and dirty on who is Judge Brian Edwards um, and how did you arrive to the place that you are right now? Sure, sure. So uh, Louisville is home for me. I was born here in Louisville, uh, born in the West End on South 45th Street. Uh, my parents are no longer here, but uh, they they are not Louisville natives. They moved here um, in the early 1960s and uh, started their family. I've got two older sisters. Uh, both my parents were educators. They worked at Central High School for the majority of their careers. Um, and I went to JCPS schools, graduated, and went up to Illinois, attended Northwestern University, um, finished up up there where I studied political science and African-American studies, decided after that to uh, come back to Kentucky for law school, went to the University of Kentucky for law, met my wife there, and uh, we got married came back here to my hometown of Louisville and began our careers in the law. Um, I started off as a public defender here at the uh, Jefferson County Public Defender's Office and did that for about three years. And after that, I joined up with uh, two uh, more seasoned attorneys who, who became great mentors for me, uh, the late Daryl Owens and the late John Stewart. And they had office uh, we're here at the Urban League offices now, but their office was right right down the street, 13th and Broadway. So I practiced with them uh, for a few years, and then I decided it was time to spread my wings a little bit and uh, set up a shop over in old Louisville, um, along with former Urban League uh, CEO, Sadiqa <laughs> Reynolds, and uh, we... We uh, practiced law together, and I stayed in private practice after leaving the public defender's office for about 10 years. Um, I continued to do quite a bit of criminal defense work, handled uh, everything from 
uh, speeding tickets to capital murder cases. Um, did some teaching out at the University of Louisville, and I was kind of in a, in, a, in a hybrid professional role. I was teaching full-time at the university and practicing law in 2009 when I was fortunate enough to get appointed to a vacancy on the circuit bench um, by Governor Steve Bashir. And uh, I was appointed in 09. I had to run to retain the seat in 2010. I was fortunate enough to, to win that, that contested race. And I have uh, had the privilege to serve ever since. Um, so when you don't find me in court or uh, working on the job that the people have elected me to serve, you find me usually on a soccer field somewhere. I uh, got two sons that play soccer. One still plays. One uh, doesn't play anymore. Uh, but I also am one of the co-directors and founders of the West Louisville Soccer Club, which is uh, something near and dear to my heart that I never miss an opportunity to, to, to plug anytime, particularly if there's a microphone in front of me. So, <laughs> Well, absolutely. And so it, you mentioned uh, Sadiqa, who is, who is yet to have the opportunity to grace the pod, but she... Um, you know, always would tell us the exploits of her time in private practice. Uh, so if you want to share quickly, what was that experience like? Um, and not just working with her, but just yeah. in in particular. I mean, if you want to share fun stories about working with her, that's also great. But um, but particularly about, you know, the work that you did as a criminal defense attorney or the at the public defender's office. Sure, sure. Um, you know. It, starting off as a public defender was a, a wonderful experience, a great way uh, for someone right out of law school, a brand new attorney, to really get get a feel for practicing law. Uh, they don't hold you back over there. They, it's, 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 you know, no pun intended, trial by fire, and they, they throw you right in. Um, you know, I was trying uh, the most serious of cases. I had murder cases within... Uh, a year and a half of having passed the bar, um, mm-hmm. and it was it was a great way to learn how to practice law, uh, to be around a, a group of folks who were experienced and supportive, um, and, and to really um, start learning what our criminal justice system is about: the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, when I went into private practice, I still, as I, as I stated earlier, continued to do quite a bit of criminal defense work. Um, and, you know, being being someone who grew up, who was born and raised here in Louisville, uh, being a black man, uh, practicing law, particularly practicing criminal defense uh, was was it was it, it was a privilege. You know, I, I saw people um, who a lot of society want to label just as bad people who want to label, you know, is even worse with a lot of uh derogatory words and names mm-hmm. and labels. Um, but I saw a lot of people who weren't necessarily bad people, but who had perhaps done bad things or were just in a bad place in their life. And I took pride in, in, in working with them to try to get them uh, second chances, opportunities to uh, make good and to make up for perhaps uh, some of the worst decisions they ever made. Um, because as I tell people, I love talking to kids they always ask, how do you represent such bad people? And I always say, hey, you know, the people I represent did bad things quite possibly, but that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily make them bad people. Absolutely. And that we're all uh, human. We're all people who have, have, have faltered um, and that we're all entitled to have an opportunity to show that our worst days, our worst decisions are not necessarily who we are. So, um Working as a criminal defense attorney was something that I took pride in. And how does that now inform your your role as a as a jurist, right? In terms of sitting on the bench, it it, it certainly it certainly has impacted the way that I carry out my responsibilities. Um, being a judge is is very different than being a criminal defense attorney. Um, I. I remind uh, younger judges, people who are just starting off, that you, you have to put away that role of being an advocate because mm-hmm. that's not that's not what I am there to do. I'm no longer advocating for one side. Um, I'm advocating for justice, if that mm-hmm. uh, if that makes any sense. And and that requires doing a balancing. You know, there is a place for punishment. There are times 
where uh, punishment has to be severe. Um, there are times where you have to hold people accountable for their for their wrongdoings. But there's also a place for compassion. There's a place for grace. There's a place for second chances. And you have to balance those things out um, to try to fashion uh, some sort of disposition that does all of the above. Mm. So, so in thinking about that, right, like historically, I don't, I don't, this is not an opinion. Like factually, we can say that historically the system has not always held um, black people in particular, but also other marginalized groups um, in fair regard. That justice hasn't always been something that, that is, is equal. In your experiences, do you see, do you see that arc bending? In, into better places is are we moving in a space or in a direction that 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 you feel is better for us when you when you take into account like the entire history of what um, the justice system has been um, in this country sure um, yes you know let, let me let me start by saying we have a long way to go there's a lot of progress that needs to be uh, made but uh, I've seen progress since the time that I began practicing law. Um, let me point to a couple of, uh, of concrete examples. Uh, one would be felony expungement. And I know the league has been at the forefront of a lot of efforts to, to, to get individuals before courts to have their cases expunged. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Kentucky was one of the states uh, that, that, you know, that was very, very behind uh, when it came to really understanding that felonizing people, uh, you know, precluding them from from doing the things that all citizens have a right to do for the entirety of their lives is just backwards thinking and it's something that needed to be changed. When I started practicing law, um, Kentucky had no felony expungement. So that means, you know, Someone who was caught at the time, uh, theft, uh, shoplifting, over $300. If you stole something that was $305 and you, you got a felony conviction. If you got caught uh, with, uh, with certain drugs, not selling them, just possessing them. If you fell behind on your child support. If you wrote a bad check for over $300 and you caught a felony conviction for any of those things that felony conviction would stay with you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. It would impede your ability to get employment. You couldn't volunteer at your kids' schools. You couldn't vote. Mm-hmm. All of those things, all those opportunities were now closed to you. And since then, uh, that's changed. We have a number uh, of provisions, a number of offenses, felony offenses that are now eligible for expungement, which allows individuals to, again, become fully participating members of our community, to vote, to participate at their kids' schools, to, to be uh, uh, free from those impediments on job opportunities. Um, so that's progress, because as we know, um, you know, there's a, a, you know, we've been disproportionately, our community, the black community has been disproportionately uh, overrepresented when it comes to folks catching these felony cases. Mm-hmm. Um, So that's one solid example. Another, when I started practicing the the primary drug epidemic that we were dealing with was crack cocaine. And uh, there was no discussion of uh, folks who were addicted to crack cocaine is is, uh, of that whole epidemic as being a public health crisis. You know, it was it was a straight criminal problem. Folks were catching felony cases for having residue, crack cocaine residue. Those were not being amended to misdemeanors. So you had people with tiny, tiny amounts uh, of cocaine uh, being uh, given these felony convictions. Again, that could not be expunged. No one cared about getting them help. No one thought about, hey, what's going on? How, how, are, how are their kids going to thrive? What's going on here? You know? How do we break that cycle? No, it was just put these people in prison. Mm. And that's changed. A lot of reasons for that. Some uh, good, some bad. And the same with the felony expungement thing. You know, that's brought 
odd bedfellows together. You have Chamber mm-hmm. of Commerce people working with the ACLU. You don't see that a lot. Right. All pushing for uh, uh, broader, broader opportunities for people to get uh, their their cases expunged. But uh, you know, ultimately, the goal and the end game is we're having more people being able to return to society in a positive way. We're having more people being able to get help for their addictions as opposed to simply being punished for them. And those are positive things. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back to something you, you talked about in terms of your, your, your background and being um, having a degree in African-American studies. Um, you're certainly well aware <laughs> in Kentucky and lots of other places around the country there has been this push against um, uh, what some, you know, they are loosely referring to CRT, which we know is not, they're really not actually talking about CRT, but essentially anything that would promote or um, educate uh, students around the realities and the real histories of, um, of this country, which unfortunately include the subjugation and oppression of black people, but also honestly, oftentimes disregards a lot of the the positive influence and impact of African Americans. And I I just wonder for you kind of what your thoughts are on how that conversation is taking shape as somebody who I imagine can see the impact of um, of that knowledge or the absence of that knowledge um, mm-hmm. on on what you currently do in terms of, you know, the justice system and whatnot, but also as, you know, just somebody who is the son of educators and mm-hmm. who appreciates the value of what um, a full and robust education means for society. Yeah. You know, I used the phrase earlier in a different context, the good, bad, and ugly, but that's what education has got to be. You know, when we're, we're teaching kids and the things that they have are exposed to and taught, they need to learn the good, the bad, and the ugly about the history of this country because there's a lot of all three. And, you know, to try to sanitize it, uh, to protect uh, students from, from learning the bad and the ugly um, is doing a disservice to, to, to our young people. And uh, it's dangerous. It is, it is frankly just dangerous because, uh, let me give this example. When I, when I taught um, in the Pan-African Studies uh, department, U of L. Uh, one of the things that I would start off a lot of my classes uh, with, particularly when I was talking about uh, race and law and, and the disproportionate numbers of, of, of African Americans incarcerated, I would always start with the example of, and I would put certain words on uh, the chalkboard because I'm old. You know, we used chalkboards back then. <laughs> um, but I, I would use words like lazy dumb, uh, over-sexualized, these stereotypes of of black folks, particularly black men that we saw uh, coming out of the books and, 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 you know, a lot of classic books and movies. And I would ask my students for a show of hands, I said, how many people believe that these are attributes uh, that are, 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 more likely to be owned by black men than by white men. And of course, no one raised their hands. Nobody wanted to admit that oh, they, they, they believe that black folks are dumb or black folks are lazy. Or that. And then I would then put some statistics up about the number of black folks in prison for offenses that would be derivative of those adjectives. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'd say, if you don't believe that black folk are inherently more inclined to be these things, then how do we get to this place? Mm-hmm. And the only answer is the structural racism. Okay. Mm-hmm. The only answer then, because you, you've taken away the fact that folks, these folks are inherently more likely to do these things. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes, well, why do they seem to be, disproportionately inclined to be incarcerated for these things. Mm -hmm. In order to answer that question, you have to look into the history of this country, the history of slavery, the history of Jim Crow, 
Jim Crow, uh, the the history of redlining, all of these things that have historically created these impediments towards opportunity and success and have created this kind of cauldron that is going to create this type of these types of behaviors. Okay. And then you top off, you know, all of that with uh over policing, uh those types of things that we can get into a little bit later. And these are things that people need to learn about. And mm-hmm. these are the things that, that James Baldwin talked about and that Ralph Ellison talked about, uh, Richard Wright talked about in their books that now people don't want anybody to be able to read. Right. So. And so, like, you can, you can, because I feel like it's important. I brought up CRT, but I think it's apropos to be talking to a, a law person about this because CRT critical race theory was essentially a theory or really not even necessarily a theory but a train of study um, by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell designed really to do what you just talked about to say let's look at specifically the law like because that's where it started was in legal studies if I'm if I if I understand correctly that it was really for law school students to say like let's look at all the laws that we have on the books and let's look at the history in which those laws came into being and say like, all right, it is hard to subtract or extract the fact that what we were doing from a race perspective colors or impacts what laws were being put into place and then how those laws are being implemented. And so it wasn't even so much um, a matter of, of, um, judgment right like good or bad it's just simply saying like this is what happened and then for students you know legal students to be able to say like all right now what do we do with that or what does that mean would that be a adequate summation of of what crt actually is sure and and let me you know yeah Derek bell a former you know brilliant law professor and mentor to to everyone from Obama, Charles Ogletree, he, he he talked about those exact things that you just spoke of, um, looking into, you know, going all the way back to some of the fugitive slave fugitive laws mm-hmm. and how these things were put into place in order to marginalize, effectively just to keep a group of people in their place. Mm-hmm. So um, all of that, I think, is is great context for how we now understand and see kind of the judicial system and the whole legal apparatus at, at in its in total everything from policing through sentencing um, and quite frankly even post sentencing uh, you know paroles and, and expungements and how those things happen like all of that gets shaped by this historical context and I I bring that up because obviously you know we're going to talk about the recent events um the most recent events about in louisville but prior to um you know a couple weeks ago or a week or so ago at this point we were really wrangling wrangling with um this doj report um uh, and what has happened in our local police department and the types of infractions and harm that has been done um for so long disproportionately against black people and I love to always lift up. They are not the only people who have been harmed as per that report. Um, but disproportionately, the Justice Department has said that, you know, that black people have have bore the brunt of poor policing in this community. What were your thoughts or have been your thoughts on on that report um, thus far? Um, it was a heartbreaking report. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is my community. You know, this is this is where I was born. Um, this is where I chose to come back, and this is where I have spent my entire professional career. Um, and, and in this field of, of the criminal justice system, this is where I've spent my entire professional career working within. Um, so seeing that report um, from an outside agency, uh, bringing in the perspective of, you know, in the context of looking at Louisville, um, 
not just in a vacuum, but looking at Louisville compared to looking at other similar cities and other locations and answer and asking the questions of, uh, you know, how how could this city be doing it differently? How could it be better? <laughs> and seeing, you know, the answers to that, that was that was tough. That was tough to read. Yet it wasn't surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my perspective is not just as uh, a circuit court judge, but my perspective is of, you know, a, a, a black man who grew up as uh, someone who was racially profiled and who was pulled over, you know, back in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard the stories that my, my parents would tell, you know, about uh, things that they experienced. Um things that they had students experience that, that, that they thought well of. And um, we talked a little bit about some of the things that have changed positively um, over the years, <laughs> but there's a lot that hasn't changed, mm-hmm. you know. Um, uh, you know, that, that report, um, if that report was done, you know, instead of in 2000, in, in 23, if it was done in 1983, I don't know if it would have been that much different, mm. you know? Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I wish I had a simple solution and answer, but um, this is something that has been building for for, for generations, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and and there, there has to be some real reckoning Mm-hmm. Um, by a lot of folk and some deep, deep uh, commitment to, to, to making some substantive cultural changes mm-hmm. um, if we really want a, a Louisville that our kids and grandkids um, that for them will be different. And that report, um, I mean, it, it, it covers, it covers the, the gamut of things and, and unfortunately, I mean, I think it it implicates even other judges, right? Mm-hmm. And folks in the in the um, who are part of the the court process here. How do how do you as a as a jurist take that, right? Like how does how does that resonate for you and your colleagues on the bench? Our colleagues are concerned, and and, and you know we don't we don't want to be a part of the problem. You know, um, we are public servants and we all have different backgrounds and experiences that bring us to, to our, our roles. But at our core, we all are there to serve and we want to uh, do right by the public, not just a portion, but the entire community. Mm-hmm. I'll speak for myself. Um, you know, anything that I can do to, um, you know, I'm always cognizant of the decisions that I make, you know, what goes into that? And how am I being impacted by perhaps some subtle prejudices that I may have, even as a black man? How am I being impacted by um, things that should not impact, you know, my, the way that I dispense justice? Um, how can I work collaboratively with my colleagues if need be and perhaps help um, younger judges uh through the process of making some of these difficult decisions when it comes to uh, sentencing, what goes into the way that I, I handle sentences and how I balance those things I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to get better. You know, I feel that I, I feel, you know, I, I don't wake up any day uh, thinking, you know what, I want to go in here and not be fair today. I never do that. Mm-hmm. But I also don't wake up every day saying, I'm, you know, I'm perfect. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try. And I, every day um, I want to be able to go home and lay my head down knowing that I did my best to be um, to, to serve the public and to be fair to everyone. Are there things that and I know this this sometimes for judges, it gets into a kind of a dicey place, right? Like you all have to maintain impartiality. And so feel free to pass if <laughs> but are there things that you that you see that that can improve, whether that be from a, a, a specific standpoint of, of policy and or practice, um, and that's whether that whether you're talking about LMPD or or in terms of that interaction with 
with the bench? Are there things that you would recommend? I th- there's been discussions about, you know, obviously the search warrant process was a big discussion in, the, in those reports. Um, transparency is huge, mm-hmm. you know. Um, when I am reviewing a search warrant, when I'm swearing in an officer uh, to, 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 you know, tell me what's going on, why they believe that there's probable cause for the issuance of this warrant, that needs to be transparent, you know, and, and that should not be done. You know, in the past, a lot of that stuff went on in chambers and back without a record on. And I don't think that that's good policy. I don't think that that's appropriate. I think it needs to be out there. Um, it It's I think it puts, um, you know, transparency is what our court system is supposed to be all about. Mm-hmm. And this is an important, very important uh, phase in the process, the the search warrant phase, and I don't think that it deserves any less transparency than a trial or a bond hearing or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It needs to be public. Thinking about now the recent events, um, so the shooting at Old, Old National um, as well as the, the shooting at JCTC outside of the spot, um, and then the most recent shooting over in Chickasaw Park. Um, Louisville, while we, I guess, now have have the national spotlight and some level of attention, we uh, are not new to gun violence, um, unfortunately. It has been a rising epidemic in our community for the last several years at least, but I mean, I'd say for as long as I've been here, I've been here almost nine years. And so um, it has been a huge problem. And there are lots of, there are lots of um, problems, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are lots of con- contributing factors to, to that, right? We talk about poverty being a huge one, um, access to resources, lots of different things. But there is one constant across all of those things, which is the prevalence of guns in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about where we are as a community, and I'll say community locally, but also as a state and, and nationally, if you want to get into that, um, with our relationship and what I tend to say is just infatuation um, with guns and gun prevalence. Um, so I'm not, I really do not think that it's productive to to be someone who kicks the can down the road and points fingers and who casts blame away. I think there's accountability uh, that a lot of people uh, need to accept when it comes to this issue. That being said, you know, I'm I'm in the third branch of government, uh, the judicial branch. Um, I don't make laws. Mm -hmm. Um, We have prosecutors we have police officers who are charged in their role within the executive branch of enforcing the laws that are out there. And I think that both the executive branch and the judicial branch um, are, are, are limited in what we can do to address these situations um, because the, the two, we don't have the tools at our disposal to do so. Um, so. Long way of saying I'm pointing blame at our legislative branch because uh, they're they are the branch that is supposed to act as the voice of their constituents. And you can you can take five minutes and do a quick little poll uh, research for uh, for polls uh, from the Pew Foundation or you name it. And there are some basic things regarding gun ownership. Uh uh, background checks at gun shows, mm-hmm. um, prohibiting the sales to folks who don't pass uh, background checks for mental health issues, mm-hmm. um, things that are not controversial. Mm-hmm. They are nonpartisan changes that I don't know if they would change a whole lot, but they can't even get those things enacted. Right. I mean, we're talking 80, 90 percent of the public. Say, so, yeah, yeah, that would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. And they can't get those things done. Um, I was on a panel 
uh, I don't know, maybe six, seven years ago. And it was talking about gun violence uh, amongst youth. Mm -hmm. And we talked on that panel about how you could go into certain neighborhoods and it's harder to get a beer. Mm -hmm. Harder for a 15-year-old to get a beer than it is for he or she to get a gun. Wow. And, and, and I don't think that's changed. Mm -mm. You know, you can talk to any 15, go outside here, find 15, 16-year-old, say, hey, uh, if you want to get a gun, do you think you could get one within a week? I bet you the answer is going to be yes. Yeah. What are we doing where, where, where guns are that available to 15 and 16-year-olds? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to hear this, oh, well, the problem with guns is people aren't locking their cars and they're getting stolen out of their cars. Mm -hmm. Yet, well, who's stealing these assault rifles, these AR-15s that, that, that I see young people coming into court with, right? not physically, but charges related to their possession of these type of things. Yeah. Where are they getting them? Mm -hmm. Where are they getting them? Who is being held responsible for putting these guns literally in the hands of these young people? Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking just about, you know, and, and so I'm going beyond the old national shooting. I'm talking about the day in and day out gun violence that I see and uh, it's it, it, I grow, you know, I grow weary as a lot of folks in this city of seeing this because I wonder, how are y'all getting these guns? Right. How are y'all getting them? Mm. And I'll end with this. And this is this is direct from my experience as a former criminal defense attorney. Uh, someone gets caught. A young person gets caught with. Uh, some cocaine and three guns, mm -hmm. they can get that charge mitigated, perhaps even dismissed if they snitch about where they got the cocaine. Mm. No one asked them. They don't even ask where they got the guns because it's almost assumed where well, everybody's got a gun. Huh. You know, what are we doing? What are we doing when we have these laws on the books that, that can send people to prison for for five, ten years and give them these felony convictions for have just having cocaine. Mm -hmm. But the same folk, you know, have many arsenals of guns and it's as if we don't even care. Right. And I think that's one of the things that from, you know, from the league perspective, we are looking at all the different ways in which legislative bodies can can do more. Um, and, and I'm going to get to community part of this, but on um, not just legislative bodies, but in talking about enforcement on this, is that issue one of, is that is that the police not asking? Is that prosecutors not asking around the question of, of, about guns? Is like, who should be asking that question? Yeah, um, I think the reason that they don't ask as much is, in my going on 14 years on the bench and in my 12, 13 years, my 13 years before that as a practitioner, um, I've never saw anyone in state court ever charged with trafficking in guns. Mm. So from a police officer's perspective, I can ask and who's selling these guns to you? Where's that going to lead? Right. But I can ask who's selling these, you know, this cocaine to you. Mm. And that's going to lead to an arrest and a conviction. So I think that that goes into it. So that goes back to what I was saying earlier. We need some real attention given to the issue of who is who, who where are these guns coming from? Who is putting these guns in these young people's hands? Mm -hmm. And then we need to have that reckoning. Are you OK with that? Do you mm -hmm. think it's OK for a 16 year old to be able to have uh, assault rifles? Mm -hmm. You know? And if you do think that that's OK, then perhaps the voters can hold you accountable the next time you're up for election. Absolutely. And so one of the things that, you know, kind of, kind of pivoting into a, a different side of this conversation is. And I'll just share like my my personal belief is every time the gun conversation comes up, there are these folks who who raise up and, you know, and basically say there's nothing we can do right like which I, I for one have just 
for a long time, uh, just say it's dumb, right? Like, I, I, and I think we have to, and you don't have to say that. I know you, you know, you're an elected official. You don't want to call people dumb, but I think at some point we have to start saying that some some arguments around this are just dumb. In in a world where we are the only developed nation that sees gun violent gun deaths and just gun incidents at the rate at which we do, to suggest that you know nothing can be done when somehow the rest of the world has managed to figure this out. I just think it's dumb, right? Mm-hmm. Like, or, or disingenuous. Um, and probably it's a little of both. Um, that said, you know, I think that there are also ways in which, you know, we as community members also have to, you know, begin to, to think about our role in this, right? Yeah. And so I wanna ask you as a Louisville native, as somebody who's who's grown up in um, our community, and as somebody who has seen a lot of folks who look like you and I, mm-hmm. um, you know, before him on on the wrong end of of this issue, uh, what what is it that you have to say to to us, right? Like to to us as neighbors, as community members, as parents, um, as individuals, in terms of our role in this in this entire fight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, as parents, you know, we've got to hold our kids accountable. Got to know where our kids are, okay? Mm-hmm. And I know it's not easy, and I know folks have stressors on them that are beyond what a lot of us can even imagine. Mm-hmm. But um, the effort has to be there in holding our kids accountable. Mm. You okay? And knowing where they're at. I mean, what I see in front of me, um, you know, you know, we're starting. I've had 13 year olds in front of me, 13 year olds in circuit court. Mm. (laughs) You know, that's 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 uh, I don't even know what the words are for that, Um, you know. I think at some point we need, um, hearkening back to what I was saying, we need our, our, our legislators to pass the types of laws that can really help protect our community. We need our prosecutors and police officers to, you know, not just want to uh, be punitive and to incarcerate, but to really be engaged and to help our community. We need our judges, myself included, mm-hmm. to, 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 to be uh, engaged and to be uh, forceful when need to be and, and compassionate when, need, when, when that need uh, presents itself too. But, at the end, but, but beyond all of that, um, you know, you talked to, to me a little bit about, you know, my, my black studies uh, teaching and, and I studied it in college. Um, and, you know, when I was learning and reading, uh, you know, about, about the faults of Malcolm X, you know, Stokely Carmichael, mm-hmm. and, and what they really emphasized is we can hope all of those things, but at some point we have to take matters into our own hands mm-hmm. and to develop our own institutions and to be accountable within our own community right. and to provide these opportunities, provide this support for our own and not be dependent and waiting on outside help to save the day. Um, so we, we, you know, those of us in positions um, who are blessed with the opportunities to do things, uh, to provide opportunities, you know, we need to step up. Mm. We need to step up. And uh, I mean, I know you're doing it. Um, here at the league, um, you know, you could be doing a lot of different things with your with your intellect and your 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 qualifications and credentials, um, and you have chose to put your time and talent um, towards this organization that is doing those things. Mm-hmm. And we need more folks doing that, creating institutions, uh, creating opportunities uh, for kids, helping to fill the void for where perhaps they're not that they're not. Uh, where, where maybe they're not getting what they need from home. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. I mean, and just showing up, right, like for, for folks. And I think that is what, you know, the folks here at the league are trying to do. And I know that there are tons and tons of other partners out there on the ground um, that are doing the same. And, and those efforts have to be invested in. And so I mm-hmm. guess that gets back to, you know, the folks who are in positions of, of, of power and privilege, um, making sure that we are investing in the efforts that are happening so that those things can be scaled and we can reach more people but it is a multi-pronged approach right like I don't I, I I hate to ever get caught in the trick bag of like oh just blaming one thing on this it's a multi-pronged issue and it's something that's going to take um, a, a multi-pronged response um, I think from this seat though it is just a matter of making sure that uh, the folks who are on the hook for the policy for the practice for the implementation um, that that they don't get let off the hook for the role that they have played in this and it's and it is a significant role because you know to your earlier point like folks can be engaged and be paying attention to your kids as as much as you can but i mean if there's literally a gun in every corner <laughs> like it is that is a very steep hill to climb sure. for anybody uh, for the best and most engaged or well-intended um, adult. That is just a hard uh, reality to have to deal with. And so we've got to get our arms um, around that as much as possible. Now, I'll also say, and I don't know how much of this you get to see in your seat, but, you know, just for the audience that, you know, in Kentucky, at least this year and thus far, for as much as we talk about homicides, we have had more accidental deaths and suicides hmm. um, this year than we've had those, right? And so gun violence is a part of those things um, as well. And so even if you're not wanting to talk about um, if somehow homicide isn't something that you concern, con- are concerned about, um, suicides, accidental shootings, right? Like those are things that happen all the time in mm-hmm. our community. Um, gunshots are the leading cause of child death in this country. Um, and that just, at some point, that should be uh, just really unacceptable for us as a society, and I don't, I don't know what it's going to take for us to get there, but we're gonna keep pushing. Yeah. Um, before we get out of here, one of the questions that I love to ask people, in particular, I love to ask Louisville natives because I appreciate, um, you know, people's affinity for their hometown and. Um, and particularly folks who have chose to to return and to plant roots there and to commit themselves to it. Um, but the question I ask is, what is your hope for your city? Um, you know, I want to see, um, you know, our city has been, and I don't remember who coined it, you know, referred to as a compassionate city. Um, I want us to live up to that, to that, that name. I want folks, um, to, to being compassionate. (laughs) I don't think people understand that's not just about feeling sorry or being nice, but it's about, um, being supportive. It's about being engaged. It's about uh, not casting judgment, you know, not looking at this section of town. Ooh, we don't want to go there. It's dangerous. Folks over there are crazy. We're not going to deal with them. You know, it's about figuring out a way. Look, instead of just putting them down, instead of being judgmental, what can we do? Mm-hmm. You know, how can we make how can we start bridging some of these gaps that we have in this city? Um, how can we make uh, parents from all segments of this city feel comfortable sending their kid to school, feeling that their kid can get the type of quality education that will prepare them to go to college and beyond? Mm. That should be something that everyone in every corner of this city feels that they can do. Mm. Um, that's compassion, you know, feeling those voids. How should we make it so that every kid here in the city feels safe mm-hmm. when they go to the bus stop and are waiting on the bus? Um, that's compassion, okay? Um, you know, 
as we've seen this past week, you know, we have people, you know, we have good people in this city, people who are empathetic. Um, but we need to figure out a way to, to, to channel those feelings of empathy into action every day, not mm-hmm. just when tragedy occurs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Judge Edwards, for, for being with us. Thank you for the service that you have provided this community as a public defender, as a defense attorney, uh, now as a judge, um, as a board member of the Louisville Urban League and just a, a staunch community advocate. Um, you know, your your voice, your uh, presence, um, it matters. And, and I hope you know and feel that, that it has resonance in this community and, and will reverberate um, for generations to come because it means something for people to be able to see you um, in the role that you have and in the seat that you occupy. And so, so thank you for that. Thank you for always being um, an outspoken advocate, certainly for this organization, but for black people as well. And uh, we just look forward to being able to continue to work in the partnership. Um, As you know, anything that the league can do, anything that I can do, you know, we are always here and and looking forward to to working together to make this um, the space that you talk about, a place where people can learn, live um, and thrive uh, unimpeded. And so thank you very much for your time here. Much appreciate the invitation to uh come and uh you know spill a little bit what's on my mind so. <laughs> <laughs> anytime you are certainly welcome uh to to come back and next time actually i may have to get you and sadiq on here at the same time uh, maybe let y'all uh share some stories from we're from gonna this. sign a non-disclosure <laughs> before we do that but I, all right <laughs> All right. Appreciate um, you, sir. Absolutely. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us here on Listen Up, the Louisville Urban League's radio show and podcast. Again, you can catch us every week. This show drops on Thursdays um, at 12 p.m. You can catch us live on the radio, 101.9 WLLV or 1240 AM. Um, or catch us at any point in time on your favorite podcast uh, station. Be sure to subscribe, rate us, review us, let us know what you think. Please, everyone, have a safe um, and healthy week moving forward, and we'll catch you next time. Urban League's Kentuckiana Bills program is your introduction to the skills trades that lead to careers in construction, plumbing, electrical, carpentry, and HVAC. This six-week hands-on and technical education program provides training for job seekers to earn three national credentials, JCTC credit, all while connecting employers with a qualified, skilled workforce. This innovative partnership is funded by Kentuckiana Works and the Kentucky Education and Workforce Development Cabinet. For more information, visit lul.org backslash jobs. The Louisville Urban League wants to make sure that every student thrives academically. And to make that possible, the league is offering free intensive tutoring to JCPS students who qualify. Kindergarten through 12th grade students can receive expert help in reading, math, and ACT prep. Kids like me deserve every opportunity to succeed and to reach our greatest potential. Sign your student up today. To learn more, visit lul.org or call 502-585-4622.